I'm, I'm going to move towards you, Joel, because yeah, I'm a little afraid. It's, I'm about to fall off the edge over here. I know. <laughs> Everybody's on this side of the room tonight. That's kind of nice yeah. when you guys don't get too spread out. It's good to be spread out, but it's not too far. <laughs> right? All right. Take your copy of the Bible and find 1 Corinthians 15. And once you got it, say, I got it. Whoa. We'll wait on the rest of you. That was fast. <laughs> Before we read 1 Corinthians 15, I'll tell you about an experience I had this summer. I was on a small, short road trip, just, just like an hour down the road. With my family, wife and I, we have five kids. We're all packed into the car. Driving down this highway, you know, back road, highway kind of thing. There's not a lot of cars, but in Georgia in the summer, there is roadkill usually, right? So there's some dead animal in the middle of the road, and surrounding that dead animal is a whole group of vultures. And, you know, you don't expect anything besides just to drive by and as you're getting close the birds scatter and you kind of move around whatever's in the middle of the road but on this particular day the dead animal meat must have tasted really really good because as I'm driving down the road in my Ford Expedition going 55 miles per hour I'm getting closer and closer and those birds are not moving so I start to slow down but you know at this point I've kind of already committed like these birds are going to fly at some point, and the birds aren't flying. Then finally, as I'm on top of this scene, the birds start to take off. And the first one, he's like looking at me with his eyes, as like through the windshield. And he's like, see ya, you know, and he's out. Then the next one's like, oh man, I got to get out. And he's flying up, and as he's flying up, boom, just knocked him. Well, knocked us, really. And the kids are in the back, ah, daddy, you hit a bird. And they're freaking out. And it was crazy. Needless to say, because I didn't just hit like a small little bird. This is a vulture that literally, like when its wings are fully out, it like covers the entire hood of my car. So it's on the grill. It's literally stuck in the grill of my car. And its wings are like hanging over the hood where I could still <laughs> like see them. Like a hood em emblem almost, right? And so I'm driving down the road. My wife and I are having this conversation, like, what do we do now? And she's like, you can't keep driving. And I was like, why not? And she's like, well, people will see us. And I'm like, like who? Why does that matter? And she's like, well, you, we can't show up. We're going to meet her parents. You can't show up at my parents with a bird on the front of our car. And I was like, well, that's probably a good point. What do they think of their son-in-law? So, okay, so I'll stop up here. And we get out, and I start to try to remove the vulture. I start to, like, survey the scene. This vulture is in the grill of my car. Like, in it. Like, not just, like, kind of hanging there, like, smashed against it. It, like, had gone through into the inner part of my car. Okay? And I'm, my wife's like, hey, grab some sticks. Okay? Don't touch this bird. That's disgusting. Okay. <laughs> I was like, well, you know. Anyway, I was like, yes, I'll grab some sticks, ma'am. Okay, so I start to grab some sticks. I'm, I'm like trying to get the bird out, and I'm like, there's, there's no go on this. I mean, at least the bird's dead, right? The bird's dead, they're in the grill, and he's not moving. He's, at least, at least there's that. So you know what? I'm just going in for this. I'm going to just dig in. So throw the sticks out. I'm like, babe, I'm going to get this bird off our car, and we're moving on. 
So I jump, I'm like on the bumper at, at one point, like pulling this bird out of our car. I'm like prying it because I mean it, like the grill's smashed. I'm prying it out and I pull it out. And just as I'm pulling it out, like, like it's a trophy, I have it by the wing. I'm like, I conquered this thing. And then whoosh, this bird, it pops up its head and it whooshes its wings up and, and, and I scream and run off like <laughs> a child. <laughs> So that's our topic today. The, the real tragedy is that Jen did not video this. Yes. Afterwards, we were like, why did we not have our video camera oh, rolling man. for this? Or not our, our phone. But the bird came called. to life. Our so Actually, that's a support for the swoon theory, I suppose. Yeah. The dead bird. But he could. I don't know. Maybe there was a resurrection. There was no heartbeat in that thing. <laughs> I think I raised the bird back to life. <laughs> I did some kind of. <laughs> Maybe it was kind of bird CPR, all the bird CPR pulling on it. Uh, I wanted you guys to incur some of the trauma that I incurred that day. Um, but we're going to talk about death and life after death. That's our topic. And so yeah. I said, what better story to start with than the that's, bird story? That's a good one. So, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Here Corinthians we go. 15. Verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to, <clears throat> as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. 
for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected that it is that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why aren't people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if I, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As, the man, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body, perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Take a moment to kind of breathe that in. That's 58 verses. That's a long chapter and one that we wish we probably could break into about, I don't know, five, six <laughs> sermons, if, yeah. if possible. There's so much here, but I think if you were to look at it just from big picture perspective, okay, let, let, what's the main point that Paul's driving at? And I think it's this, he's, he's going to make sure that the church at Corinth has a solid hold on the gospel. And central to the gospel is this incredibly important doctrine of the resurrection. You with me? We've got the gospel. Let's get the gospel message right. And he, and he really begins the first few verses here with this message. He's saying, okay, I'm, I'm taking what I've received. And he says it very similarly in, in chapter 11 when he gives the church the Lord's Supper. He says, here's the meal that... Uh, I'm telling you as I received it. So he says, here's the message. I'm telling this as I received it. Basically saying behind this message is a whole lot of other people. A whole lot of the work of God. That coming together in this message, this gospel message, is this church tradition that says this is the message. This is what we hold on to. This is what we believe. And this gospel message... He says, I preached it to you, but there's a problem. They've forgotten it. They've gotten, parts of it. they've gotten one part of it very wrong. And so he says, I'm going to say it to you again. Here it is. I delivered to this to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he was seen by these eyewitnesses. Now this message, this gospel message is simple, right? I was sitting today like on the way home from church this morning, our services that we had here this morning, and I was saying to my son, who's eight years old, do you know the gospel? It's a good question to ask. Like you could literally ask this to anyone, you know. Do you know what the gospel is? And you'll hear everything. Like if I were to ask this room, I know for a fact I would hear like all kinds of answers. But it's really simple. The gospel message is what Paul records here, that Christ came, that he died, that he was buried, and he rose again. Now this is good news to us because why? Because we know that without this gospel message, we would be like Paul and say, and we would be apart from God without his grace. Uh, he says in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul says, I, 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 only way I received this message was because of Jesus. And so, I think the first thing we have to grasp is the gospel. Yeah, and, and it's, it's really important to realize. Now, remember, the, what's, the church at Corinth is just a mess. And, and my hunch is, a lot of their drift and a lot of the division is this, um, the misunderstanding of the central piece mm. of, the go of the gospel. And, uh, you know, the reformers... Uh, Luther, in particular, used to say, you need to preach the gospel to yourself yeah. every day. Yeah. Uh, because it's not just the entry point for us. 
And if you look at those first 11 verses, you have uh, Paul in, a, in, the, in the simplest form giving you the gospel. Uh, Christ died for our sins, buried, uh, rose from the dead in accordance with the scripture. Right. So you've got the, here's the gospel, and it's uh, historically attested to. Yeah. You've got all those witnesses, and then, uh, then it was, um, I, I, how would I say this, uh, uniformly preached by yeah. all the apostles. That's right. So you, that, you have all of that in those first 11 verses, and that's Paul saying, listen, you take away, the, you take away this, you, you the resurrection, you have no gospel. Yeah. So this is not really like, if we're trying to preach the whole chapter, we, we can't spend much time here. But I mean, just briefly, this is a great apologetic, right? Oh, or, yeah. Yeah. I mean, talk about that for a second. Well, if you, if you're, if you look anywhere for uh, biblical text on the resurrection, this is it. Uh, N.T. Wright actually wrote an 800-page book on this chapter. That's right, an 800-page book. Yeah, read that over Christmas. I've read about 150 pages of it. It's spectacular. I I don't know if I'll ever finish. I don't know if N.T. Wright's actually read it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, (laughs) He's like, I'm not even going to proofread this. Yeah, it's just 800 pages, trust me. Um, Actually, D.A. Carson, a little side note here. D.A. Carson says it's the best work on the resurrection ever written. And I trust D.A. Carson. Aside from that, it is an unbelievable apologetic. Because it, it, and now look at, look at what he says. Yeah. It gives you a defense of the scriptures, right? In verse 3, um, he reminds them, uh, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And Joel, I think you pointed out last week, in fact, they didn't have the yeah. New Testament. Yeah. What Paul is saying there is, in accordance with what you know about God from the Old Testament, Christ died for our sins. Yeah. Um, buried, raised, you know, this whole idea of the scriptures are validated by the resurrection of Jesus. Um, And then he appears to all of these witnesses, almost 500 of them, and he says, look, these people are still alive, a lot of them. He says most, some of them have fallen asleep, which means some of them have died. Mm -hmm. But basically Paul is saying, you want to know? Go ask them. Like if you want to try to prove the resurrection didn't happen, go ask these people. They're still alive. And so the apologetic there is really strong in those first 11 verses. And the fact that historically, even at this point, this church is maybe AD 55, this church started, or this letter was written. And so within 55 years of the resurrection, you've already got the apostles preaching this one unified message that Paul's just written to the Corinthians about. So... If you need an apologetic for the gospel and the resurrection, yeah. the first 11 verses of this chapter, about as good as you can get. Yeah, and actually a really accessible book would be, um, I think it's Case for Faith, uh, Lee Strobel's book, that, yes. that has several chapters about the resurrection that cover this. Uh, yes, and it's not 800 pages long. Yeah, it's a lot <laughs> shorter, very accessible. So that's, that's a good book. Um, now the issue, and this is what we're getting to, is found in verse 12. So look at verse 12. This is... This is the problem that the church is having, that he's, like, this is the heart of it. He says, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Right? Like, guys, this is the message I preached to you. And he's going to go at this problem, like, in various ways. He's going to, like, keep coming back to it. Like, 
okay? And he's going to use a series of uh, arguments. Uh, and so the first one is, uh, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is vain, is in vain. Uh, he's going to say that, in fact, we've been liars here this whole time, if, if this isn't true. Uh, and, and also, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Your friends and family who, who, know, who have known Christ, yeah, they've perished. And uh, we should be pitied. Like, uh, so that doesn't make me feel too good, Paul, right? No, he's saying, yeah, that's the point. That's how important this is. Uh, I, was, I was thinking about this uh, because I've heard this argument a good bit. And, and maybe it's not the worst argument in the world, but maybe, maybe Paul would disagree. I don't know. But it, there's something that is formerly known as Pascal's Wager. And it goes something like this, that a rational person can believe in God. Uh, you know, because if you follow the Bible, it has good tenets. It's good, a good way in which to live. And so if it turns out to be untrue that there is no God or no resurrection or whatever, then, um, you know, what's the worst? You know, you lived a pretty good life. You maybe had to deny a few things. But if this is true, then you have an infinite gain, right, in God. Well, <laughs> it's, it's, it, I don't know. Again, we can, we can talk about the reasoning there, but if... What Paul says here were to go up against that idea, I think he, he would strongly disagree. He would say, no. He says, we are of all people most to be pitied. If the resurrection is not true, then everything we hold falls apart. Right. I, yeah, I, I think Paul would have some problems with Pascal's wager. <laughs> uh, because Paul says, no resurrection, no, no gospel. Yeah. Like, it's not a, oh, well, what do you got to lose? It's a, here's what you have to lose. Everything. everything. Let's go home. I mean, I'm sure Pascal was a great guy, but it's <laughs> um, not a very good argument. <laughs> so now he comes back in verse 20 and he says, okay, here's what we have in Christ. He's the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Uh, so it, to understand that, you've got to go back to the book of Le Leviticus. If you know anything about the first fruits, in the first fruits, uh, the people would bring the first part of their harvest Right, it makes sense, first fruits. The first part of their harvest to the temple, they would dedicate it there in the temple. And it had some significant meaning. One, you know, it, it meant that what they were dedicating as the first part meant that like all, it all belongs to God. Uh, but it also connoted this idea that uh, like as that first part was, so the rest would be. As as one commentator puts it, uh, the first of a kind involving the rest in its character or destiny. So when he says that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, he's saying to believe in the resurrection, why is this so important? Well, because Jesus is the first fruits, meaning what happens to Jesus is what happens to us. And so that's why he goes back and forth uh, in 12 through 19 with connecting so tightly this idea of Jesus rising from the grave and us rising again from the grave. In fact, like something I kind of skipped over there is just this idea of, or not an idea, it's a doctrine of our union with Christ. Yeah, yeah. I thought, 
Is that something you could talk about? Oh, yeah, sure. I, how much time we got? Um, it, it's really one of those neglected doctrines, this mystery that we are somehow united yeah. with Christ in his righteousness um, is one of those things that will make your brain uh, blow up. But um, what, what Paul is saying here is that it's inseparable. Mm-hmm. Our identity with Jesus and his identification with us is inseparable. So he's saying, if you deny the resurrection of the dead, then that means Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Because we, you can't separate us from him. That, that's really what's amazing. If you go to Romans 8, mm. it's probably one of the strongest uh, arguments Paul makes for that whole idea of being united with Christ. Nothing can separate mm-hmm. us from the love of the Father. And then he has that long list of literally everything in the universe. None of that can separate us. And um, in fact, Romans 8, not even death. Um, and so Paul, um, this, this idea of first fruits, again, I, okay, I'm one of those weird guys. I actually love the book of Leviticus. I got two fans out here. I, I would encourage you to read Leviticus with an eye toward the, the resurrection. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It'll, it'll change the way you view Leviticus. I know some of you are going, have you read it? Uh, and I know all the, you know, waving the wheat over the altar and all of that. You're trying to figure out how does that, just trust me. Think about resurrection when you're re- reading Leviticus. It'll change you. Um, I forgot where I was going with that. But first Union with Christ is a big deal. First fruits. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was reading I it. just got off the road from six-hour drive, so. <laughs> I was reading Ephesians 2, 6. Uh, or, uh, chapter 2, it's this long, long sentence that Paul writes. <laughs> and at the end of it, he says, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That um, the idea of this union with Christ is that as Christ is, so we are. Uh, and he'll dig into this deeper in the chapter, you know, I, well, we've already read it, uh, where he says that as Adam w- was, so are we, but now... The man from heaven, so as he is, we are. So, <laughs> if you are in Christ, his destiny is your destiny. Yeah. And so, let me just kind of pause on that for just a moment because this has really been the big thing for me. Like, there's so many biblical promises that I, like, know in my head, but it just doesn't sink into my heart. And I was thinking about that for this chapter that this chapter is so full of promise for us as believers, this, this idea that we are with Christ, that, that death has been conquered, etc. It's so full of promise that like, it has to sink down into our heart. We can't just let it stay in our head. And so the point I was making is, uh, here in Ephesians, Paul says, look, Jesus has been raised up into heavenly places, so therefore that's where you are. Mm. Like right now, we're with Jesus in heaven. Like, we are with him. That's, that's how strong this doctrine is of, of, like, what it means to be in Christ. The, um, man, there's so much good stuff in here. This is about five sermons. I, <laughs> oh, I have a little rabbit trail I want to run down here. You ready? Yes. He quotes one of the Psalms here. Anybody know what it is? 
It's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Bonus points if anybody knows. Thank you. I you couldn't cheated. see. Grace, I knew you had hands up. You I cheated. couldn't see. Psalm 110.1. One. 110.1. One. That verse is quoted more than, or alluded to. It's quoted and alluded to yeah. more times in the New Testament than any other verse. So, Joel, what's the significance of that? Yeah, when we get to this, oh gosh, what part are we in now? I, I, I'm jumping all over the place. I told you, I, I got, I'm going on very First little sleep, well, a lot of caffeine. No, it's kind of, we're slowly <laughs> progressing through it. Uh, when he gets to the part where, in verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Psalm 110.1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The, the first place I think of, of that verse being quoted is um, where, oh gosh, now I'm, I'm now I can't even think of the reference, but they're saying, like, how can this be so that that um, the Lord would say to my Lord? What does that mean? And for the Jewish audience, they were, like, figuring out, oh, this means the Messiah, as in Jesus, he would be the one saying to God the Father, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Paul keeps running with this text to help us understand, like, like what it actually means in Jesus. And he says, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So, uh... What Jesus is doing is he's riding out as conqueror. That's, that's, that's one of his roles in the, in the Trinity as a part of the Godhead, that, that he conquers. He's yeah. the king. He's the one going out to battle. And he says the last enemy is death. Yeah, and the, the idea that all the New Testament writers would, would – I do think every New Testament writer makes it uh, – a reference or an allusion to that verse in Psalm 110. Mm -hmm. So think about, think about what that's saying. They, listen, listen to it again. The Lord says to my Lord, so that's, that's the Father saying to the Son, um, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And in this 1 Corinthians 15, you basically have, you, you have the enemies listed, right? Mm -hmm. Sin death, well, sin and the guilt that accompanies that, mm -hmm. which is brought on by the law. He, he, he alludes to that when he says, at the, very end, yeah. Yeah, the, the, at the end where he says the power of, of sin is in the law, the fact we can't keep the law. So it's sin, guilt, and death. And what the psalmist is saying there, it's this messianic psalm. He's saying, look, Jesus is going to sit on the throne until God has put under the feet of Jesus all three of those enemies. And those are really the, the three things you and I have to worry about, right? Sin, guilt, and death. If you got those pulled off of you, mm -hmm. you're pretty much invincible. So it's just, to me, the reference to that psalm yeah. is not something yeah. we should just skip over really quick, but like sink down into that and think about why does that matter to the New Testament authors and especially to Paul as he's writing about the resurrection? Mm -hmm. It's an amazing promise. And then in verse 29, he says, what do, me, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? So he's going to ah. use uh, an argument. Uh, his next argument is based on a very practice they are doing. Like, why, why are you going to baptize people on behalf of the dead? Now, that's a whole other subject, like what in the world's going on there. But some kind of vicarious baptism is happening. People are standing in for dead people to be baptized. And he says, look. If the resurrection isn't true, why are you doing that? Like, if people aren't going to come back from the dead, like, there's no point there. Okay, so then he says, 
Okay, here's the next argument. Why are we in danger every hour? What, what do I gain if, 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 humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What's the point of all this? There's no point, Paul says. And then he says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor. As is right, do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. He finally gets to this point where he's just frustrated to his end. And he says, look, it's time for you to wake up. If you're denying this resurrection doctrine, then you need to wake up. You need to get yourselves right. You need to get yourselves right around this message. And if you don't, you need to get away from people who don't get it right. Yeah. Bad company ruins good morals. And so he's saying, okay, now we've got that to rest. Let's move on. Here's the next question. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? <laughs> and what then he... He gives that agricultural, yeah. um, you know, you put a seed in the ground and it dies. Yeah. And when you plant a seed, any, any gardeners here? Any, anybody plant things? Oh, yeah. So if you, if you plant, surely in elementary school, they still do this in elementary school. They give you the little paper cup and you plant the seed in it. And My kids do that. Yeah. That's what comes out of the ground doesn't look like the seed, right? It's not just a bigger version of that. It's the something completely different looking comes yeah. out of that yeah. so he gives that analogy to say look when you when you're raised from the dead you, you're gonna look different yeah <laughs> they just can't wrap their minds around the idea so you die and then you come back to life like this is zombie it's like walking dead I that's what they're thinking understand like yeah and if you <laughs> if you talk to someone or maybe you're here tonight and you're like i have no context for the bible at all and these stories like you might be thinking what are you talking <laughs> about right like you're and he's saying, okay, here's the example. It's the seed. When you look at that seed, it looks dead. You bury it in the ground. You literally put dirt over it. That thing's dead. Whoa, something's growing. Man, this, this is crazy, right? Like he's saying, this is, this is what it's like. That, that what you see in nature is, is what, what God has built into nature is what now God has built into us for those who believe. That um, He's saying, here's the resurrection body. Uh, and really just to make it really simple it's totally different but the same right the, the best picture we have of that in that this whole idea totally different but the same and i and i think i i listened to your uh to the online yeah. message you alluded to the jesus on the road to emmaus yeah. and um if you don't know that story there are these two guys walking and jesus just appears like I don't know, maybe he jogs up on them. I don't, I don't know what's <laughs> happening there. Could have. But they don't recognize him, right? Yeah. And even some of the disciples don't recognize him. Yeah. He's the same but different. And then when they're having the conversation with him, it's actually the first Bible study, by the way, small group. Jesus walks up to these two guys, and they're yeah. talking about uh, something. And then he explains to them, it says in Luke, um, that all the scriptures were basically about him. Mm -hmm. And then they, they come to this realization, wait a minute, that, that, that was him. Mm -hmm. So that's the best picture we have at the end of Luke of this whole uh, same but different. Jesus is in a resurrected body, and they're not freaking out like, who is this person? This is not a person. This is like some crazy being. They, they see him as a person, but they just don't quite recognize him. And so uh, I think that's a, a great picture for us to understand this resurrection body. Um, and then finally... He, he explains that more with the idea of um, animals and, you know, different types of flesh. 
But then he gets into this idea of what is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. And he talks again about how we were in Adam, but now we're in Christ. And then finally he says in verses 51 through 57, he says, this is a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I had to read that again. Here's, man, to me, if there's, if there's some verses that in, in our cultural moment we need to just, mm-hmm. if you need to get the tattoo, this is it. <laughs> all right? Think about, like we're all terrified, our entire culture. Mm-hmm. The media is trying to scare us to death, yeah. right? Like, every, like everything is awful, we're all going to die. Yes! One out of one. Those are the stats. Right? Death is swallowed up in victory. I, like, I don't know why, but this silly image in my head. Think, anybody like M&M's? You ever eat just one M&M? No, you dump a whole handful. Think about if you, one M&M, the way you can swallow one M&M, that's the way death got swallowed up in the resurrection. Mm, it's just, it's like nothing for Jesus to go, death, gone. And, and, and we live in a world that's wanting to scare us, like, and the enemy knows it, and he leverages our fear, and he leverages everything to take our eyes off of this truth. We are immortal. We're going to live forever. We, there's nothing for us to fear. And, and like to me, like there's not a better passage for our cultural moment than, than this. And Paul's saying, listen, the resurrection's true. You've believed it. And here's what's awesome about it. Yes, you're, you're going to die, but not really. Because death for you is going to be like you walking through that door back there and you're just going into a better room, into a better life, into a better world because death has been swallowed up. And I, like to me, these are the best verses in the whole chapter. The whole chapter is amazing, but I just think for me yeah. in the moment we're in, this yeah. hope yeah. That, that, that shouts against the culture, that death is swallowed up. We don't have to fear. Yeah. And, and then... His I was, conclusion. I was thinking about being around people who have been on their deathbeds, mm. particularly those Christians who've lived their lives knowing Christ, loving Christ. And I was thinking about that experience as I contemplated these verses, and I was thinking about the joy that they had on their deathbed, hope. And I was thinking, you know. Have you, I don't know, have you guys done that? Have you seen that before? I, I mean, it, it's, it's transforming. Because you realize what they're holding on to is what you hold on to as well. 
But they're holding on to it in a whole different way. Yeah. Because faith is becoming sight. Mm. So for them in that moment, man, I, I, I just think of one in particular where we just were singing hymns and singing, singing, and, and I saw them just go. And I was thinking, they, they were like ready. They were just, it's transforming. And so when we read a promise like this, that death is swallowed up in victory, that death, there is no victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? That, like, can we live that? Mm. Because we know the reality that we're in, that death does sting, death does hurt. Death will break us apart at times. But even within that reality, this is what makes this promise so powerful. We can look at death defiantly and say this. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your, your sting? Because of Jesus, our Savior and our ruler, the, the last Adam, as he said here, the ultimate Adam, as it says in this chapter. I was thinking about this idea that, or somebody brought it up when we were meeting earlier this week about the idea of how tyrants rule oh, yeah. by death. You think about Hitler and, and people in that mold who have established their reign through fear and death. That's still happening, like Vic was saying. I mean, that's people are constantly trying to win us over by fear. And then, you know, the worst, by death. But how does Jesus rule? How does he establish his reign? In love always in love and in doing so right he invites us into that kind of kingdom he invites us to live that way too i i think when i think about the resurrection i i can't help but think about the story of lazarus mm. when That's he's raised from the dead do you, I, I often wonder what it would have been like to hang out with lazarus after jesus raised him from the dead I think it's uh, Ravi Zacharias has this take on it where can you imagine Lazarus standing before somebody like Caligula threatening to kill him and Lazarus goes, okay, been there, done that. <laughs> I mean, what? think about that. Lazarus just got this little glimpse, yeah, yeah. right? And, and, and Jesus with a word calls him out. Yeah. It, just this idea, what must Lazarus have lived like yeah. knowing that the yeah. one he was following could just call him out of a grave. Yeah. That's our, yeah. we live that. My favorite part was I hear a preacher preach that one time and he said he had to call him by name or else they would have all walked out of the grave. That's right, yes. <laughs> how crazy would that have been? And <laughs> how Lazarus would have lived is how Paul tells us to live in verse 58. Let's finish it up right here. Therefore, my beloved brothers, here's, here's our call. If we let these truths sink into our hearts, be steadfast and movable. Nothing can move us. No fear, no death, nothing can move us if we hold on to this. And he says, abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So therefore, since your sins are forgiven, since death has been conquered, since believers had the certainty of resurrection. We know all these truths, right? We've been forgiven. We've, death has been conquered. We have the certainty of resurrection. Stand firm in the gospel. That's our call for you guys tonight. Awesome. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you uh, for, for the, uh, 
for the power of the resurrection. There's no other way to describe it other than just absolute power. Um, you conquer every enemy that we fear in one moment in history. When that stone rolls away and Jesus walks out of the grave, you declare ultimate victory over everything that the enemy says we should fear. And so, God, we rejoice in that tonight. I, I pray that as my brothers and sisters in this room uh, move toward the end of a semester that is clearly just crazy. There's a lot of confusion, and there really is a lot of fear. And, and it makes sense to sometimes be afraid of the unknown and what's going on. But I pray they would lean hard into this mm -hmm. promise that death has swallowed up. Mm -hmm. There is no power in sin or the law because, Jesus, you have won. And you sit on the throne reigning. Father, thank you for that. Thank you for what you do uh, to remind us of those things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.